Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Haley Wooden. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. And we've got a special guest joining us today. It is one Patrick Blennerhassett, our colleague here at Business in Vancouver newspaper. Patrick, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. So tell us a little bit. You've been working on some stories in the newspaper, as always. Yeah. And what's going on this week? Because I think you've got something uh, Surrey-focused, which we always like to chat about. Yeah, interesting thing going on in Surrey, and um, I want to say this is sort of indicative of lower mainland real estate, and I'm sure everybody knows about this, but um, single-family detached homes aren't selling like they used to be, and this kind of started- Are there even enough available to buy at this point? Yeah, and that's sort of, it's. this is a fascinating thing because I don't think anybody has the full answer, and talking to people- out in Surrey in the Fraser Valley, and I talked to the Urban Development Institute. Um, there's a lot, there's so many things at play that it's just, you can't answer this with, you can't sort of uh, solve this question with one answer. Um, because it sort of all started, you know, kind of in the west side of Vancouver, of, of Vancouver proper. Um, homes started not selling as much, and then it sort of spread up to North Van, West Van, up like that. And now it's sort of spread out to Surrey is the the massive single family home that was, you know, the suburban dream. Is that a right word? Suburban, suburban dream. It's just yeah. suburban. Yeah. Also suburban. makes me think of, a, uh, a, a, of an SUV like you know, <laughs> that goes along with the that suburban goes along dream. with yeah. the suburban yeah. dream. So according to the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board, um, the benchmark price for a single family detached home was down 0.3% to $971,900 from September of this year. And it's also dropped in terms of sales and how long it's sitting on the market. So the average single-family detached home in the Fraser Valley is now sitting on the market for more than a month. Really? Yeah. And in Vancouver real estate, a month is like, 17 years like not to exaggerate but it's interesting that you bring this up and you're talking about surrey because i'll I'll just go from my own experience Uh, parents sold their home i believe last year in surrey um and it actually sat on the market for like quite a lot longer than i expected i think it was maybe on there for uh, two months yeah and i don't know if maybe they were just waiting for the right price or what have you but it, it actually was not kind of this uh white hot market that you would have expected just based yeah. on what we were hearing, especially last year when, you know, we really were following a lot of stories about how out of control the market was in Metro Vancouver. Yeah. And it, it's, it's fascinating because, um, a couple of years ago, it probably would have sold right away and it would have been multiple, multiple bidding wars. Um, that has now sort of shifted to townhouse, townhomes and condos. So the average townhouse or condo in Surrey and then the Fraser Valley is sitting on the market for about 18 days, which is pretty much half. Yeah. So if you if if you went to somebody three or four years ago and said, um, you know, in townhouses and condos, so the uh, the attached market and multifamily have been outselling the detached market now for I think it's something like close to two years. So they've been making up more than 50 percent of the sales. And before that, basically, as far back as recorded time goes. 
Um, the single family home outsold both townhouses and condos combined in the Fraser Valley and everywhere else. So Yeah. You have to think to some extent that's a function of price too. If people are getting edged out of the detached yeah. home market, they're going for townhomes, pushes prices up there, moves people who maybe would have been looking at townhomes over to the condo market. We had Jason Turcott on the radio show from Cressy Development looking at some of the latest numbers. It's the same thing happening in Vancouver too, a really, really hot condo and townhouse market yeah. and a cooling detached home market so the i think the fun thing is trying to unpack why this is happening and i guess we could kind of break it down Haley makes a good point i mean paying just under a million dollars for a home out in surrey or in the fraser valley is probably not ideal for anybody right like i don't know a lot of people unless you are thinking of moving out there and you're going to keep your job in downtown vancouver or, you know, you've, you've already got wealth to begin with. I can't see a lot of people who could afford that, right? So I think what's happening is I, when I talk to the Urban Development Institute is that they've sort of found these sort of thresholds where the market reaches a point where they just, it's the roof and people stop buying. And I think, um, you know, in sort of North Van, it's uh, two or in the North Shore, it's about two or 2.5 million. Um, West Vancouver, it's about 3.5 million. And they find that once the average changes, I call oh, it. Yeah, jump change. <laughs> once the average price reaches that, um, the market really quiets and it quiets fairly quickly. And so um, basically the ripple effect is that Surrey has kind of hit that threshold, which seems to be mm. around a million dollars. Nobody wants to pay close to a million dollars for a home in Surrey. So that's kind of the, the first side of it, I would say, is that buyers... Um, are not willing to say, I'm going to give up living in the city, but I'm going to pay a million dollars to live in a home. I also wonder just how much of it is going to be a generational thing going forward, though, because I think just a lot of younger people are okay with the idea of raising a family in, say, a condo. It's not something that's a kind of an egregious affront to them. It's, you know, they'd rather be in a neighborhood that they really love as opposed to, commute back and forth between you know long distances like to me i i think back to my days when i was growing up in surrey and i'd work downtown and i would commute like an hour plus uh each way and it was just like i i can't even wrap my head around doing it nowadays no, yeah. you know and like that like i would be happy to pursue kind of that condo life as opposed to going for a detached home like out in the suburbs though yeah so I found a really good study. It's done by Resonance Consultancy, and they're a Vancouver-based uh, sort of uh, a research firm. And they sort of said, or they found out, they, they pulled a whole bunch of people across British Columbia, mostly in the lower mainland. And they basically said what you said, Tyler, is that, um, you know, millennials um, are so about 60% of them are willing to forgo square footage for a bunch of other stuff. So square footage is not even the second or the third determinant. The top determinant now is proximity. So they want to live close to cool stuff, to transit, to all that stuff. Um, But what's fascinating is that the overall entire demographic trend is changing as well. You got 46% of the respondents said that they'd be willing to sacrifice space for price and also for proximity. And that includes baby boomers and it includes Gen Xers. So this looks like it's something that's spilling out from the millennials. I don't know. I'm, I'm totally just forecasting and philosophizing and shooting from the hip here. 
spilling out from the millennials into other generations where the other generations are maybe saying, maybe I don't need that three level home with 18,000 square feet and three garages and all that stuff to be 18,000. Sorry. Wow. No, or 1800. You can get that for a million dollars. It's probably a pretty yeah. good deal. <laughs> sorry. 1800. Um, so that's sort of the other thing is that, um, is it, is this a demographic trend that is influencing the baby boomers and the Gen Xers or is it something else or the baby boomers willing to downsize? I, well, I, I know a lot of baby boomers who are looking to downsize too, right? And even if you think of the typical home I had growing up, you also had the separate dining room and things like that, yeah. which maybe younger generations don't need that extra space. They're not going to use it the same way, say, uh a couple who are a little bit later on in their lives might use it if they're entertaining. So it might be, you know, a shift in values, a, a shift depending on where you are in your stage of life. So here's the scary thing. Now I'm going to get negative as I always do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Ah, right. Sorry, guys. Okay. So getting back to the report, it's called The Future of BC Housing. And here's the thing that kind of worries me and I think should worry a lot of people is that uh, they found that 34% of Metro Vancouverites plan on selling their homes. This is like an actual home and downsizing with the next five years. And so the report also found that 60% of those surveyed also plan on using the sale of that house to fund their retirement. Hmm. You couple that with the fact that home sales are not necessarily uh, as hot as what they used to be hypothetical you have a baby boomer couple that bought their house in vancouver and let's say you know let's say the 60s or the 70s right they bought it in carisdale and they probably paid a pretty reasonable price for it worked in their careers had their kids now they're empty nesters they want to downsize can they still sell that home and fund their retirement i mean that's I've a scary thing to think of a lot of these baby boomer couples that might not necessarily have that nest egg that they're banking on. I'll also throw this out there, and it actually made a lot of sense to me. I was at a keynote address from Salim Ismail. He's the former chief innovation officer at Yahoo. He's an author, a futurist, um, helps run a thick think tank. And he's projecting the fact that if you look at what uh, unmanned vehicles or driverless cars are going to do, in which pretty much no traffic is going to happen because you have cars communicating with each other. Roads are clear. You don't yeah. have to worry. People aren't really going to own cars anymore if they can just, you know, get an un, uh, a driverless vehicle to take them from one side of the city to, say, the suburbs. Yeah. So what happens to the price of real estate? If the whole reason why real estate is more expensive in Vancouver is because it's closer to downtown, the economic core, mm. it's easier to get there. You're not dealing with traffic. What happens to real estate prices if everything kind of evens out? If it's yeah. like instead of an hour-long drive to Surrey, it's suddenly a 20-minute-long drive. Things flatten out when it comes to real estate prices. I wonder what that's going to do for a lot of the uh, single-detached home uh, owners here in Vancouver that we're counting on the prices that they're experiencing right now to persist for years to come. That's interesting. That also maybe changes the way we think about homes. You don't need a double car garage if it's yeah. driverless vehicles and you have you know access to it, right? So even that's like part of the square footage of a home that you don't necessarily want to pay for. It's Vancouver. Forward. Turn that garage into a craft brewery or something. There you like go. Yeah, I like that. that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but that's a good point. Right. You don't need the driveways. You don't need the garages. You know, how is that going to change kind of the future of these single detached yeah. homes? Or, or more specifically, because we're seeing a lot of these uh, lots will get purchased. 
torn down and then they'll build new you know homes there so i just wonder how that's even going to impact say just the general architecture of vancouver i would say sort of i'm gonna get negative i was going negative uh, the, the really scary thing to me is that in Vancouver specifically, we are the tip of the spear. We have the most inflated real estate prices in the country um, and almost in the world, Sands, you know, Hong Kong and a few other places. So if we can't figure this out and all of a sudden we take a real turn for the worse, nobody's going to get hit harder than Vancouver. I mean, Toronto is yeah. obviously going to get hit. Winnipeg, you know, not going to get hit. Calgary, not. they're all not going to get hit nearly as hard as us. But if we don't figure this out and the market suddenly has a shift and decides to depress prices, I think of all the people that are basically going to have a really difficult time. You're going to have a whole bunch of baby boomers who don't have who have retirement plans that have gone out the window. You're going to have millennials that aren't going to be able to, we're home poor to begin with, are going to be de defaulting on mortgages. And these are millennials that are struggling to get high paying jobs in Vancouver in a city that hasn't developed a high paying job sector and is still sort of filling out in terms of population and all that. Like this, I really don't want to say like, I feel like this, it's a house of cards, but it has all the hallmarks of being a house of cards in Vancouver. Yeah. It just and, feels like something's got to give at a yeah. certain point. I, I think everybody can agree that the market as we're experiencing right now, it's not sustainable. We did see a bit of a cooling off um, after last year to a certain degree, but it, it's kind of getting up there again. So what, what's, what's the end game? I, I'm not clear on that. Well, we've been, I mean, I've been, we've been talking about this since I've been coming on the radio with you guys for, you know, like two years now. And it's been the same song and the same story. And prices continue to seem to propel themselves like this perpetual motion machine where we have an off month and then it's right back and, and selling hot again. And we have a foreign buyer's tax come in that softens the market for a few months and then it's right back up again. So it's like, I don't know where we're headed, but. Yeah, you know, if I was a betting man, which I'm not anymore, which we won't get into. <laughs> Learned that one the hard way. Um, yeah. We're heading somewhere that we have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. So, alrighty. Well, Patrick, why don't you stick around with us for a little sure. bit? We're going to take a break and then come back and talk about some of the news that is uh, catching our attention this past week. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600, at 604-714-3600, or else check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. Well, in news this week, it's worth noting the Paradise Papers. This is a story that continues to evolve and develop every day. It's a follow-up to the Panama Papers worked on by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Toronto Star, and CBC, and it essentially shows Canadian individuals, companies, and their links to offshore tax havens. And in this particular leak, 13.4 million documents revealed and more than 3,300 connections between individuals and companies to these offshore accounts. Among them, pretty interesting, Loblaws, the Montreal Canadiens, three former prime ministers and the revenue chair for the federal Liberal Party. And it has sparked quite a bit of debate. At this point, we know the Canada Revenue Agency is looking into it. It's not illegal activity per se. It is a legal tool that 
clearly many individuals use, but it has sparked some conversation around whether ethically this should be a legal tool made available. Yeah, we had a SFU political science professor on the radio show this week talking about that. And Andy here said that he hopes, you know, we could bring more attention to the need for more transparency when it comes to these kinds of things. But we also need to consider how this needs to be kind of a global effort in order to stamp out a lot of this financial evasion here, yeah. because he, he actually compared it to whack-a-mole. Like you stamp out like one of these um, entities that are offering offshore uh, tax uh, evasion, Let, let's use it, you know, properly evasion services. And mm-hmm. well, another is going to pop up uh, somewhere else in the world. So it can't just be Canada changing its rules. You need a globally concerted effort to do so. Well, you think back to the Panama Papers and what that kind of uncovered, And yeah, I would use sort of a similar analogy is that you're flipping over one rock to expose a whole bunch of sort of under the level, uh, you know, tax. I don't even know what you would call it. But I think the idea is that every time I see something like this, I always think about what else don't we know and what is not going on? Because there's millions of tax havens and millions of countries doing this type of thing. And we've only sort of, I think, sort of discovered a very small percentage of it like scratching the surface we're just scratching right the surface yeah. right now and you know having traveled and having sort of experienced other countries um you realize that corruption is incredibly rampant um everywhere else except for canada and a few other places so sure this is the type of thing where i think it's like these these are great and it's it's a good expose but uh, we've probably got a really long way to go to sort of uncover the full depth and breadth of this stuff so. yeah yeah and realistically if you're talking about you know, sort of an international coordinated effort to try and stamp this out, that's going to take years and obviously different countries incentivized to maybe not cooperate. Exactly, because if there's already (laughs) corruption going on amongst the higher ups, why would they care about stamping this out? Well, and who who would, that's the other thing is who takes the initiative to do something like that? Because a lot of this touches a lot of the leaders. So something like the United Nations or maybe Interpol or something like that, these are are bodies that are governed by it looks like the leaders that are intertwined in a lot of this stuff. Well, so they're but- they'd be shooting themselves in the foot if they sort of said, "Let's get an international body to look at this and come uncover my tax haven that I've got in Bermuda because I'm the prime minister of so and so nation." Right? If you looked at developed economies, though, dominated by democratic systems, so you would hope that it garners enough attention from you know the the voting masses to you know put people into power that would want to pursue yeah. this so but i mean I, I think what you guys are both saying though it's going to be years down the road before we i don't know if we ever see some real global concerted effort to stamp this out well uh on my end here uh the bc gaming industry it's still growing uh it's been doing so over the last two years we got new data out from the entertainment software association of canada And ESAC shows that, well, growth has been swift since 2015, but not nearly as much as what we're seeing in Ontario. So number of full-time workers in BC has grown 7% to 5,900. We've actually had the number of companies grow to 152. That's almost 20% climb. Ontario, though. 171 companies have um, uh, are now operating there for video game developers. That's a jump of 58% over the last two years. And they've also had a jump of more than 50% when it comes to full-time workers. They're now at 3,800. So I, I, I don't think BC is losing ground to Ontario. We still have growth, 
whereas Quebec has actually seen a decline in the number of workers. But we are seeing that Ontario really is catching up very fast, moving at a much faster rate than British Columbia is right now. I think from, I always like to go from the macro perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard this statistic a few times is that the video game industry is bigger than the uh, movie industry. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Just like, that's it, staggering. It, hey? like, if, if you think about like the revenue, like a movie ticket's going to cost between what, 13 to 20 actually some tickets cost like 25 bucks now yeah, if you yeah. want to grab like the a drink. D-box, and, yeah, yeah. 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 But let's say, you know, a movie ticket is significantly cheaper than what it would cost to for a console game where you're paying upwards of $60, $70. And mm. I also would argue that maybe the gamer lifestyle is uh, a very intense one. And so they're, they're big fans of whatever they're into. So, yeah, I, I definitely buy that uh, those numbers that say that, yeah, the gaming industry is surpassing the uh, film industry in terms of revenue. Yeah, no, Cineplex, I think, just came out with its third quarter report as well, and it's showing declining sales when it comes to people going to movies. So there you go. Yeah, I think it's the other thing is like the rise of esports too. I was watching a documentary about that and that's how that's fascinating. Kind of taken off yeah. and it's, it's combined itself with like the cosplay sort of uh, festival, um, what Comic-Con. What do you usually dress up as? I, <clears throat> Uh, Sailor Moon. <laughs> okay, I can buy that. The classic. I do a good Sailor Moon. I don't know, but it, it's fat. And I'm just thinking of myself in my Sailor Moon costume. And I can't think. <laughs> I'm picturing it right now. <laughs> I can't not picture it now. <laughs> but you think about the size of that, and you think of the weight and the might. And I, I guess getting back locally, you think of the opportunity that Vancouver might have in terms of developing its video game sector. We've for for the longest time had this kind of like niche little sector. Um, is I, that something we could expand? I would right? say we're hampered only by access to talent. I yes, think yeah, yeah. They, we, from just talking to schools, schools are pushing people through the pipeline. Yeah, uh, you know, making sure that they, but they can only do so much at this point. You also have to be able to attract talent from other countries as well. So making that easier. I mean, we do have that global skills strategy that will uh, rolled out in June. Uh, that I think that's going to be. Uh, uh, applicable to those in the gaming industry, not just say high tech. Yeah. But you know, I, I think that access to talent is something that Vancouver is going to have to grapple with. Whereas Ontario, it simply has like a much larger population, which means yeah. more schools, more people to comb through there. Yeah, yeah. for right. sure. Well, that's it for our show today. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and uh, leave us a review. It helps people find us. But uh, Haley, if somebody's looking for you online and they want to read your stories, where should they go? Yeah, they can head over to BIV.com. We have uh, podcasts there, radio shows there, and of course, our written content as well. And if they want to connect on social media, my handle is at Haley Wooden. Yeah, you can find me at Reporten. And we know, Patrick, that you don't have a Twitter account, do you? I don't have Twitter or anything or Instagram or Facebook, but you can find my stories on BIV.com or just Google my name and uh, reach out to me that way. You do have a Wikipedia page, though. I'm on Wikipedia. That Which is interesting. Weird. I don't know how I that. I found you there. I was like, oh, I, oh well. man. I, yeah, that's the weirdest thing when you're on Wikipedia because you can't write it and you can't edit it and uh, it just goes up. I'll stop um, doing <laughs> oh, my yeah, own stop little, editing uh, my like, Wikipedia uh, page and yeah. saying that I like cosplay Sailor Moon costumes. <laughs> well, it is on the public record now. We yeah. have a quote oh, from you. No, we can attribute it to you now. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's Patrick Blunner has it available on Wikipedia, and that's it for the Business of Vancouver podcast.